morning. If you have a copy of God's Word, open with me to Psalm 62. Psalm 62. I would like to thank Dr. Allen for the kind invitation to preach again in chapel. It is always a joy anytime I can gather around the Word with this dear seminary and college family. Uh, I'm grateful for the opportunity. Uh, also want to recognize uh, that February is Black History Month, uh, a month where we celebrate the invaluable contribution and achievements of our African-American friends and neighbors. Uh, so I hope that you will lean into that in whatever way you can this month. So Psalm 62, uh, say amen if you got it. All right, and I would like to invite you to stand with me uh, in honor of the reading of the words of our triune God. Psalm 62, the Holy Spirit says, To the choir master, according to Jeduthun, a psalm of David. For God alone, O my soul, waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock in my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. How long will all of you attack a man to batter him? Like a leaning wall, a tottering fence. They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. For God alone, O oh my soul, wait in silence. For my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in him at all times, O oh people. Pour out your heart before him, God is a refuge for us. Those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. And the balances they go up, they are together lighter than a breath. Put no trust in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. Once God has spoken, twice have I heard this. That power belongs to God. And that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. For you will render to a man according to his work. Let's pray together. Father, you said that this word, that David's words here are written for our instruction. That through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Oh, that we would be taught by you, our God today. That we might have this gospel-shaped hope in our souls. Wherever we are this morning, would you meet us? Would you meet us in our weakness this morning, God, and show us that you are strong? Would you help me in my weakness to be helpful to my brothers and sisters this morning? I pray that you would do this by the Spirit. In Jesus' name, 
Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Whatever else they had planned for their vacation, I'm sure drowning was not on the itinerary. I have a bit of a weird fascination with near-death experiences and close calls. And I once came across this woman's story describing the moment that she developed a fear of drowning. She detailed a vacation where she and her family were out boating in the evening and the weather quickly turned. And while they were about a mile offshore and the rough of the water, she fell overboard. And this woman described the feeling of horror and helplessness as the four-foot swells put greater distance between her and her family in the boat. The storm was so violent that even the boat had begun taking on water, so it was unable to come to her rescue. Though she considered herself a strong swimmer, it took less than a minute for her to realize that her own strength wasn't going to save her. In fact, as she described her experience, she expressed how strange it felt that all of her strengths in the real world, her accomplishments, her education, her success, all of the things that she typically relied on for a sense of security proved to be powerless to come to her aid when she was fighting against the waves. When they were eventually rescued, this woman said that the 22 minutes she struggled in the water felt like an eternity. I've heard many stories of near-death experiences like this one, and one common thread that I've known, that I've seen that runs through many of them is the realization that the things that people typically rely on for security and meaning are unable to rescue them in moments of true crisis. And really, these experiences just expose what's true all the time. But I guess when you're faced with the very real possibility of drowning, you get a healthy dose of perspective. I know that for many, perhaps some here in this room, the last year or so has felt like one prolonged near-death experience. You may have felt that sense of helplessness, perhaps even a temptation to despair. You may have experienced loneliness, longing, loss, You may have found yourself in that spot as one great poet describes those moments where you're in so deep, it feels easier to just swim down. Maybe the last year has exposed areas in your life of misplaced trust. As the things that you have relied on for security have proven powerless to help you in the midst of a pandemic. Even if this season 
has not been as disruptive for you. If you are a Christian and you live long enough, the Bible promises all of us that we will experience seasons that will put our trust to the test. If anyone here knows what I'm talking about, God would like a word with you. For so, the psalm I read in your hearing reminds us this morning of a simple but profound truth that changes everything. Psalm 62 reminds us that God is a refuge for the redeemed. I think we see this central affirmation in verses 7 and 8. And on either side of this declaration are two specific instances where this foundational truth is crucial to remember, but all too often easy to forget. In verses 1 to 6, we see that God is a refuge in trouble. And in verses 8 to 12, we see that God is a refuge and temptation. And though these sections describe different challenges and the potential for misplaced trust, we see that the hope for the people of God is the same. In verses 1 to 6, we see that God is a refuge in trouble. The section begins with an expression of confidence in God. Verses 1 begins, For God alone, or for God only, my soul waits in silence, or waits patiently. He alone is my rock, my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. We see this kind of singular confidence that David has in God. Spurgeon called this the only psalm because of the frequent use of this word only or alone to underscore the psalmist's trust in God. Here, David is describing his confidence in God alone. But we learn that this confidence is not without context. For we see in verses 3 and 4 that David finds himself in trouble. He's a man under siege. Verse 3, he turns from talking about God to talking to his adversaries. He says, how long will all of you attack a man to batter him like a leaning wall, a tottering fence? He uses this rhetorical question familiar in the Bible. How long? Of course, David is not asking his assailants for a particular time. Rather, he's using it the same way that my children use it. When we drive anywhere. It's an expression of desperation. How much longer is this going to go on? Will this ever end. And we see the serious nature of the situation and that David is not in a place of strength 
where it could be a fair fight. He's in a place of weakness. David says he's like an unstable wall or fence. And and that's when these guys make their move. When David is unstable, that is when the enemy would seek to shake him. But we've already heard it. Because God is this man's rock in salvation. Verse 2, he will not be greatly shaken. David may be in trouble, but God is a refuge in trouble. Structurally, this is emphasized by the fact that verses 5 and 6 repeat David's confidence in God that he spoke in verses 1 and 2 with several significant changes, I will note two. Number one, whereas in verses 1 and 2, David explains his soul's confidence in God alone, in verse 5, David exhorts his soul to confidence in God alone. Verse 5, he says, For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. He talks to his soul. You know, sometimes we have to remind ourselves of the most basic things, don't we? We have to set reminders for ourselves to take medicine that keeps us alive. If I drive off without my seatbelt buckled, my minivan registers its protest. We must remind ourselves of the most basic things. And in the same way, when we find ourselves in trouble, we must regularly exhort our souls to believe what is true. It's been said many times before, but you must preach your best sermons in the mirror. You must give your most biblical counsel when no one else is on the couch. You must evangelize most fervently when you're doing your morning devotions. While David was waiting patiently upon the Lord, he was preaching to himself to wait patiently on the Lord. The second difference I'll note is that while David's confidence in God in verse 1 leads him to say he will not be greatly shaken, in verse 6, he drops the greatly. Verse 6, he only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress, I shall not be shaken. It's like this trouble only serves to increase David's confidence in God. So often the Bible reminds us that for believers, trials are training for trusting God. You just think about the Apostle Paul. 2 Corinthians 1, Paul describes his sufferings for Christ in the advance of the gospel. And he says that he was burdened beyond his own strength to the point, as the text says, 
He despaired of life itself. This is one of Paul's many near-death experiences. But you know what he says? 2 Corinthians 1.9, but this was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such deadly peril and he will deliver us on him. We have set our hope. What God was doing by allowing his people to endure difficulty in the work of ministry was to develop dependency on the God who raises the dead. For believers, there's no such thing as purposeless pain. There's no such thing as hollow hardship. There's no such thing as an empty near-death experience. God is doing a thousand things in your hurt. And every season of difficulty is purposed to drive you to deeper dependence on God. Troubles are real. Troubles are deep. But when deep troubles rise against us, the God who raises the dead is a refuge for us. And brothers and sisters, if the God sovereign over life and death is for you, please tell me I will wait. Who can be against you? God is a refuge in trouble. In verses 7 and 8, we see the central affirmation of the psalm that God is a refuge for the redeemed. In verse 7, David again declares his confidence in God. Verse 7, on God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. How did David come to this place of confidence in God? You think back on the life of David, and David was no stranger to brushes with death. This guy had seen some stuff, right? Yet through every diverse and dangerous situation, David came to believe the truth about divine salvation. It rested not on himself, but solely on God. Verse 7, on God rests my salvation and my glory. This is an important reminder that you cannot have this kind of singular confidence in God if you think that you have the resources within yourself to save yourself. But by faith, David says he was saved by grace. It was not his own doing. It was a gift of God. When David's talking here about salvation, I don't think he just has in mind temporal deliverance from enemies. 
Every instance of God's work in this man's life is a reminder of the greater hope to which it pointed. Hope in those ancient promises that could be found all the way back in the garden. Those promises that a son from the line of David would come and build a new temple where sin would be dealt with once and for all. In short, David hoped in a greater David. And whether it was war against the seed of the serpent or the weight of his own sin, David waited upon God for his salvation. I guess you could say that whenever he was outgunned, outmanned, outnumbered, and outplanned, even when he could not stand, God was the salvation of this man and God alone. And with his salvation staked solely on God, what does David do? Did you see it in verse 8? He turns to invite others to do the same. Verse 8, trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Verse 7, he says, God is a refuge for me. Verse 8, he says, God is a refuge for us. You know why? Because when you get saved by this God, when your hope is set solely on him, you've got to tell somebody. I love the story of the deaf man that Jesus heals in Mark chapter 7. After healing this man in in front of a crowd, Jesus charged them not to tell anyone. Ha! Good luck with that. Mark 7, 36. But the more Jesus charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. When you run into Jesus, You can't keep that to yourself. David's soul had found refuge in God and he calls believers to get in on that. And specifically, he calls for them to pray without ceasing. Or as he phrases it, to pour out their heart before God. As a parent of four kiddos, I've seen a few things poured out. Maybe a bowl of cereal on the couch, the contents of mommy's purse, certainly my bank account. (laughs) Diapers are expensive. But in every instance, when kids pour things out, it gets messy. And in the same way, God calls for us to pour out what is heavy on our hearts to him. What's heavy on your heart today? Doesn't matter how big or how small objectively it is. Doesn't care. Doesn't matter how messy it is. God wants you to pour it out to him today in prayer. Doesn't matter 
If other people know about it, it doesn't matter how insignificant it is in the world. God wants you to pour it out before him. If he didn't want to hear it, he wouldn't have inspired scripture commanding you to do it. So trust in him at all times and pray without ceasing. On the other side of this central affirmation, David turns from focusing on God as a refuge in trouble to focusing on God as a refuge in temptation. In particular, he points to two representative examples of temptation to show the vanity of misplaced trust. He mentions the temptation of trusting in reputation and the temptation towards trusting in riches. In verse 9, he mentions two poles on a spectrum. He mentions those of high estate and those of low estate. And the, the terms that he uses here in the text, uh, they're, they're used in Psalm 49.2 in parallel to terms for rich and poor, indicating what I believe is some kind of class distinction we're talking about here. And he says in verse 9 that those of low estate are but a breath, and those of high estate are no better. They're a delusion. Regardless of someone's status or reputation, trusting in people ultimately is always foolish. In fact, when you stack them all up on the scale, high and low and everyone in between, they're like a puff of air. They don't even move the needle. So trusting in your own status or in the status of others being a fearer of man, affords no security. And beyond trusting and reputation, David warns against the temptation of trusting in riches in verse 10. And he addresses two facets of temptation towards financial gain. We see the first one, he says, put no trust in extortion, set no vain hopes on robbery. He warns against amassing wealth through injustice and oppression. You know, there's no shortage of examples in our world of putting profits over people. This is evident in the fact that sex trafficking brings in an estimated 9.5 billion dollars a year in our civilized country. 9.5 billion dollars to reduce image bearers to items for purchase or images to download. In our own faith tradition, it wasn't that long ago when we saw many putting their trust in oppression and extortion rather than wholly on God. Where professing Christians held firmly to an orthodox doctrinal statement in one hand, while firmly holding to a system of enslaving fellow image bearers in the other. And in this way, they were not trusting God. 
And we still live under the dark shadow of their extortion and robbery to this day. But even if wealth does not stem from injustice, the psalmist says to still be on guard. He says in verse 10, if riches increase, set not your heart on them. It's true. You cannot serve God and money. Trusting in stuff is as futile as trusting in status. However much wealth you amass when you start your big money-making ministries, you're eventually going to leave it to somebody else. But the believer has something infinitely more valuable. Hebrews 13.5 says, Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For, get this, God has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. When you have the very presence of God as your refuge, you don't need to be picking pennies up off the ground. When God is your refuge, you can let goods and kindred go. So don't set your hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy, most importantly, himself. In verse 11 and 12, David concludes this section and really the psalm as a whole with this numerical saying similar to others found throughout the Old Testament. He says, once God has spoken, twice have I heard this. In essence, he's, he's saying that what follows is true and trustworthy because it comes from God. And specifically, he notes three things about God. He notes that power and covenant faithfulness and justice all belong perfectly to God. And this is good news for people who need a refuge. This is good news for the redeemed. A God with all power, but without love or faithfulness could be vindictive toward you. A God with all love, but without all power, is ineffective to save you. And a God who is not perfect in justice cannot be trusted by you. But brothers and sisters, in Christ, the God of our salvation has no such limitations. Whatever is going on in the world or in your soul, you can rest in the power, steadfast love, and justice of God. When you feel powerless, God is powerful. When you are at your end, God is able. When the night is long, God is loving. 
When the world is full of injustice, God is not indifferent. When you feel weak, God is working. When you're gripped by sorrow, God is sovereign. And when you are faint, God is faithful. That is the kind of God we need. And that is the kind of God we have. A God perfect in power, love, and justice. You know, whatever other things you may be tempted to fear in this life, drowning need not be one of them. Because if you are united to Christ, hidden in him, you've been through the waters before in baptism. And because you have been raised to newness of life, God being 100% for you and with you, whether you find yourself in trouble or in temptation, you can trust in him at all times. For God is a refuge for us. Let's pray. Father, my time here is done. Would you continue speaking? For your glory, for our joy, we pray. And all God's people said, amen.